I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. I'm sort of sad to say I think this may be the week I take my tights out of the drawer again, so I think it's a bad week for mini skirts and a good week for legs. A tight time, isn't it? This week I'm obsessed with potentially the first sensible thing Kanye's ever said. He tweeted that people are committing suicide because they aren't getting enough likes. Speaking for myself, I personally want to participate in social media with the option of not having to show my followers or likes, he said. He also compared showing the number of likes someone has on social media to how much money you have in the bank. I think that's actually a very good idea. Kanye in sensible statement shocker. A few other talking points from the week. Theresa May has urged Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, to freed British-Iranian aid worker Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. It's a story that many of us have been following since Nazanin was detained in Iran in 2016 for allegedly spying and plotting to topple the Iranian regime, something she fiercely denies. Nazanin was recently and briefly released for three days, got to see her four-year-old daughter and then heartbreaking was yanked back in again. Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt is impressing me more than he did as Health Secretary thus far by adding to the pressure. He tweeted, it is not acceptable to detain innocent people arbitrarily at the cost of enormous human anguish after meeting his Iranian counterpart at the UN Assembly this week. Also this week, Trump gave a speech at the UN Assembly in New York that had other world leaders laughing out loud. He encouraged everyone to reject globalism and embrace patriotism. My favourite bit is when everyone laughed, Trump goes, I didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay. And Jacinda Ardern took her baby to the UN. She did and made history. Baby Neve is the first baby to ever attend the UN Assembly. I'm a big fan of Jacinda Ardern, but making history, she regularly does. She was the only world leader to give birth whilst in office, aside from Benazir Bhutto. Oft comes with a lot of grief for her, although perhaps grief is just part of being a world leader, which is why it isn't the job for me. There was recently some controversy over her flying separately to a meeting at the cost of £40,000 so she would be apart from her baby for one day, not three. Neve hadn't had vaccinations so she couldn't travel and Jacinda still breastfeeding and debates roared over that one with some people saying that her deputy should have gone instead of her but as her partner is um, reported to have pointed out, a Prime Minister hasn't missed that meeting since it begun in 1971 so why should she? And Look, if we want women in roles like that, then we need to be cognizant of the fact that childbirth, I mean, like we were talking about last week, the Hadley Freeman piece, has different demands on the bodies of women than on men. Yes, it's sometimes going to cost more, but progression doesn't come free, pals. Agreed. A listener from New Zealand emailed us to say... 
Clark, her partner, is most well known in New Zealand as a naughty's television host, namely of a music video request show on After School TV. He was the dreamboat of a nation's collective pubescent attention. He was adored and fancied and imitated. The girls wanted him, the boys wanted his cool guy gelled hair. Since that time, he's become a respected broadcaster, hosting radio shows and producing a television show that was picked up by National Geographic. Seeing this man morph from my pubescent idea of a dreamboat into my adult idea of a dreamboat, funny, intelligent, accomplished and willing to put his career aside to care for his child to support his wife and her career is so indescribably satisfying. I love the example that Jacinda and Clark are setting for us. They're quietly and subtly showing people that the way it has always been is not necessarily the way it has to be. While plenty of others debate whether a new mother should work or who should bear the weight of childcare, Jacinda and Clark are just getting on with it on the floor of the UN no less, regardless of the criticism. I'm so excited for my generation and the ones to come to have this quietly radical couple at the helm showing us how it can be done instead of how it should be done. She's had a lot of criticism on that note about being a, you know, a new mother, whether or not she should work. She actually took exactly the same maternity leave as me, although arguably her uh, job was a little harder than mine. But a, a listener emailed us, I think about four or five months ago, saying, um, that there were so many people who had a real issue with the fact that she was giving mm. birth in office. Mm. So it is not, I, I agree with that lovely letter that Jacinda and Clark are setting an amazing example for us, but there's also a lot of people who would rather that example was not set, mm. which again shows the whole point about progression not being free. What else is in a ye old mailbag this week? We had so many lovely emails uh, with reading recommendations and most touchingly lots of offers of friendship in a foreign city in response to our listener who was feeling lonely in Berlin. And I love it uh, when that happens. I know, Real I know. matchmaker, that inbox. It was so lovely. We had so many people get in touch saying, here's a great book she should read. The listener was originally asking for some books to kind of make her feel less alone or stories that will inspire her about people being alone in kind of foreign cities. And so many people in Berlin gave recommendations then also said, please pass on her email address or here's a great place where you can meet people. We sent all of your emails on to her and then we got an email a mere few days later informing us that they'd met up, two of them, and had gone to a comedy show in Berlin the night before and it just made us so, so happy. So thank you again to our listeners for always being such a kind and enthusiastic and engaged bunch. We also had an email from The Rooted Project, which was co-founded by a pair of dietitians, one of whom, disclaimer, is my best friend Rosie, who got tired of the Nutribollocks filling their social media feeds. They are putting on a brilliant event that they're doing, which I thought would really speak to our listeners. It's called Skin Food, and it's on the evening of Monday, the 8th of October in London. And there'll be an expert panel who are exploring the scientific links between what we eat and skin health. It's a debate that rages on there's so many different opinions so many different myths out there i speak to so many women about skin and they're just constantly confounded over you know what you can do what helps what sort of damages your skin they'll be addressing questions such as does chocolate cause acne million dollar question what's the best diet for anti-aging as well as important issues related to skincare regimes and the skin positivity movement and the connection with mental health. I know so many people, me included, have suffered from bouts of bad skin in their 20s. It's a myth that acne is for teenagers, and really good dermatologists often cost a hell of a lot of money. This event could help so many people understand more about their skin and also sieve the myth from the fact. Tickets can be bought from the rootedproject.co.uk or via the ticket link in their Instagram profile at rooted underscore project. What else have you been enjoying this week, Panda? 
It's a very dull, repetitive thing to say, but I've mainly been more obsessed with things I was already obsessed with last week. Killing Eve, which has just turned into quite the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. Did you brave it on your hangover? No, I decided I that's it was, the right choice. Yeah, I decided it was too much. I spoke to, I was at a wedding on Saturday night and I spoke to a lot of people who, were, who said it was the best thing they had ever watched, but they were like, definitely don't watch it tomorrow when you're hungover. So no, I'm no, going to save it for this weekend. <laughs> um, Jodie Comer is the next big thing. Though. She is going to be huge after this. She's, she's just incredible in it, actually. I know I said last week that a Russian should play a Russian, and I do still largely stand by that point, that it's better to cast people within mm. a certain um, demographic or experience. Mm. But she's actually brilliant, and I don't think anyone could have played that better, Russian or otherwise. Um, another one that I was obsessed with and I'm more obsessed with is Press, which I just love for its slightly sensationalised but still true, I think, portrayal of the moral and ethical dilemmas posed by news journalism, how you get the story, how you relay the story. Um, those are both on the BBC and also on the BBC. This is a total BBC fuckfest. I've been saved this week, um, which hasn't been an easy one, by fortunately with Fee and Jane. I know I mentioned it last week, but it is utter heaven. I cannot recommend this podcast enough. Like Dolly sometimes does, I've been listening to it sort of 20 hours a day mm. and I've never felt so comforted by a podcast as this one. In the latest episode I listened to, they were bemoaning the phrase, and this is something I love doing is picking apart that kind of all of those sayings that no one actually ever says in real life. So one of theirs was late night revelers. Fee <laughs> Glover said, you know, have you ever heard someone say, oh, I'm just off reveling this evening? And the, they apply similar fury to the fact that in news reporting of a fire, in the second paragraph, it's always called a blaze. Yeah. As, since when do you hear people calling firefighters the blaze brigade? I love that kind of level of analysis of sort of... Common parlance. media, yeah. yeah. It's and like so, what we always say about how people take to Twitter... Yeah, yeah, yeah. In papers, but they never that's never a verb that you do in real life. You can't. I don't think you can take to Twitter because Twitter's not a physical thing. I aspire to be these ladies, both of them, either of them, as the highlight or otherwise one Well, day. I was going to say, there's one way that we're headed, Panther, and it's probably... Oh, I'd love to be headed that way. I really would. On to... Also, they eat. Jane Garvey eats the whole way through. <laughs> And it always sounds like a croissant or a donut. We always get the RC emails I know, because you people. hear me eating half an olive. I'm literally, I now get so scared. I've got a flat white in front of me that I'm scared of slurping because any time we even I'm so dehydrated by the adventure, every time we venture, even just a wee little nibble. Of who I will get, take to Twitter to bring us down. I get these angry emails from everyone. People are so proper about it. <laughs> on to, I do understand that hearing someone masticate is the most unpleasant thing in the world, but girls gotta eat. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a nibble of an olive or a haribo from now time to time. I think give us a break, guys. <laughs> on to a slightly less comfortable experience. Putney, a new book by Sofka Zinoviev. If I was being lazy, I would call it the new Lolita. Um, it's a book about consent and how we tell stories to ourselves and others and how those stories shift and reform throughout history. Three voices tell the story of Ralph, who is a 27-year-old composer when he meets Daphne, age nine, a friend's daughter in the 70s. She is described as slippery as Mercury, more sprite than boy or girl. He is obsessed with her from the off, 40 years later, and Daphne is questioning what went on in her adolescent years aided by her old friend Jane who is encouraging her to prosecute. We also hear the story through the voice of Ralph which is uncomfortable but really riveting, particularly given the um, 
the kind of cultural and social time of the 70s and how they um, really jar with, mm. with now. One reviewer wrote, and I thought this was really interesting, despite there being a kind of clear side that you should be on, um, you find yourself being beguiled by Ralph and, and almost complicit at times. And it's, it's a very interesting, very hard to read book. I'd be really interested to see what more people think of it. I think that sounds like a very brave narrative device and, and much harder than telling a kind of very clear-cut moral story. Yeah, no, it is. And I think those um, uncomfortable stories are really important. What I would say is possibly a bit like Killing Eve, not for a hangover and not for the 3am insomniatics. Mm. Is that a word? Insomniacs. Maybe the Nancy Mitford for the 3am <laughs> and the Sofka Zinoviev for like... The 6pm. Yeah. The jolly the jolly midday bus ride. <laughs> Who has a jolly midday bus ride? I have plenty. <laughs> what have you been enjoying this week? I've been listening to The Rat Line, which was recommended by a lovely woman called Fiona, who I met at a wedding this weekend, who was very, very nice about the high So hello, Fiona. And thank you for recommending me The Rat Line, which is a 10-part Radio 4 series in which Philippe Sands investigates the mysterious disappearance of a senior Nazi called Otto Vector. It's called the Rat Line, as for anyone who doesn't know, I didn't know, Rat Lines were a system of escape routes for Nazis and other fascists who were fleeing Europe in a panic at the end of World War Two. This is um, such a great podcast series to listen to. It's so beautifully presented by Philippe Sands. I just played a tiny little bit of it to Pandora, and she um, was fairly weak-kneed by his voice. I was, I was. It's, um, yeah, it's really brilliantly produced. And, and there's, he, he as a narrator, there's an emotional through line with it because his family were victims of the Holocaust. So there's a very kind of strong personal thread, but it's also investigated in a very detailed journalistic fashion um, with lots of interviews uh, from lots of different people and a really close examination of various documents and kind of uh, secret letters. It's very compelling. Um, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm only an episode and a half in, but finding it fascinating. I also was sent a great article, which is a memoir piece for Vogue, uh, which is about being single at 30, written by Bella Mackey. And I think it's really doing the rounds online at the moment, even though it was actually published last March 2017. And I think it's resurfaced because she's recently married Greg James. So I think... think (laughs) I think that's why it's doing the rounds. Um, So, yeah, it's a great, great piece. And obviously it's something I'm thinking about a lot at the moment. And I've already realised a whole month into being 30 that being single at 30 feels different to being single at 28, 27 or 28. It's all about how she had this invisible biological clock that was kind of ticking away through her late 20s and and it really kind of panicked her and how she had a short-lived first marriage, then found herself single at 30 and learnt to really cherish the state of singledom and being on her own at that stage in life and investing a lot of time in her friendships that felt more like a deliberate choice to, to of how she wants to spend her time rather than, as she describes, sort of sitting in a waiting room waiting for a relationship. Um, So I'm just going to read an extract of it that I thought was particularly brilliant. 
It would be Pollyanna-ish to claim the community that, that has grown up around me can provide everything. There can be surprisingly shaky moments at 2am when I think how nice it would be to touch someone else's skin or hold a warm hand as I sleep. Birthdays, Christmas, the dreaded New Year's Eve, all the times when I look around and appreciate how lovely it must be to experience with someone else. I still think about the joy of another person wanting to know my very bones. But although I date, I know now that in always rushing to become half of a couple, I never bothered to understand myself fully. All women become like their mothers, that is their tragedy, Oscar Wilde wrote. I have an interesting and textured life, I have a real career, I have people who are my people. I'm independent, I no longer live by the demands of the invisible egg timer. So perhaps Wilde is right, perhaps I have become my mother. If so, it is neither a tragedy nor a rom-com, it is a real life, one that has sometimes been impossibly tough to envisage. My teenage self would be utterly horrified and that, it turns out, is no bad thing. It's a it's a beautiful piece, and, and what she's referring to there with her mother is is that her mother didn't meet her father and have children until her late thirties. So I think that's in reference to when she was younger. She kind of she did she was fearing putting it off that late, and now she looks at the life that her mum has and the choices that she made, and realizes that even though it may not be the template that we're all told that we should follow, um, it's full of joy and treasure as well so I just I found it a really comforting read and I loved it and I'm sure lots of our listeners will like reading it too I don't think it's nullified by the fact that she did get married in the end no no I don't think so in her early 30s because also I think the whole point like I often I get a bit cross when people totally misunderstand when I write about how I enjoy being single yeah that they think that you are resistant to ever falling in love yeah, with someone it, yeah it's and not so it's not binary no and it actually it started to really annoy me the number of people you know I wrote in my column a few weeks ago about how I don't want to obsessively date and be you know completely driven by by frantic dating app usage like I did in my 20s I mean Pandora knew me at that time I mean it was not a peaceful time it was like a really frantic time when I was that obsessed with with romantic love and and I wrote about how I, that's that's a period that I'm glad it's over. And I've had so many people come up to me and be like, oh, don't give up on love. I found that really sad. Oh, you feel really cynical and you mustn't be. You'll find a lovely husband. And it's like, you're just not it's getting exhausting. it. You're not getting it because actually what I'm saying is I, I want to I want to be so happy in myself that when I do hopefully fall in love, as Bella Mackie says, it's because I've met someone really fucking great rather than... I'm looking for completion. And and for people who don't understand that, they need to read more articles like Bella's. <laughs> She's a brilliant writer. And you know her father was the editor-in-chief of The Guardian, Alan Rossbridger. Yes, who also, I love. Also, yeah. famous old fellow, brilliant, brilliant writer. So clearly writing is in the bones. On a less important note... Greg James is my, I think, my only celebrity crush. He's a long-term one. You never talk about celebrity crushes. Don't really have them. Don't really see the point. I'm never going to have them. What I will say is you should watch Greg James's hashtag influencer set of stories in his stories highlights on his Instagram page. They are very, very funny. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Today's guest is the comedian and creator and host of the hit podcast, The Guilty Feminist, which has had over 50 million downloads to date. Deborah Francis-White has now written a book about 21st century feminism, and it is very funny, very clever, very thoughtful, and very relevant. Thank you, Deborah, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Pandora and Dolly, for having me. It's an unqualified delight to be here. (laughs) Deborah, can you start by telling us what a guilty feminist is? I can. I think that the idea for Guilty Feminism came about because uh, I was originally having lunch in 2015 uh, repeatedly with another comedian called Sophie Hagen, who's brilliant, and she's gone on to do other wonderful things, including other podcasts um, since then. But the idea was we were kind of confessing to each other things that we felt we wouldn't confess to other feminists. So um, one of my original ones was, uh, I think the first one I ever did on the podcast was, I'm a feminist, but one time I went on a women's rights march and I popped into a department store just to use the loo. And when I was in there, I got distracted trying out face cream. And when I came out, the march was gone. And uh, that and is one of my favourites. I, I love that one. But I since then, I have asked audiences how many of you have left a march because you felt claustrophobic because you just wanted to sit down because you'd had enough because uh, you'd gone to the pub with some mates you thought we just can't do this anymore and more people had left a march than made it to the end but everyone went yeah we felt embarrassed we felt like we mm. were the bad feminists mm. and of course you're not you're you're i mean to be fair i mean i probably am because i went into the department store to use the loo and got distracted trying out face cream and i did come out with a very smooth skin um <laughs> but if you find oh this is actually too much now i can't you know this i'm getting claustrophobic in this crowd you're not a bad feminist you're just you're someone who's shown up you wanted to be counted you wanted to speak up um and but you you leave with a little bit of guilt and shame and you carry that on you like luggage yes and 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 then because instead of watching the four-hour documentary on BBC4 about the suffragettes, you turned over to watch the Love Island Marathon, you then the next day in that meeting allow yourself to get talked over or you're not saying, hold on a minute, you know, why... Firstly, why am I the only woman in this room? And secondly, you know, there's... I know at least two women of colour in this company who are experts on this and why were they not invited to this meeting? And instead of speaking up for yourself and other women and advocating for women um, uh, who, you, you know, you you may see a valid privilege you have that another woman doesn't have and instead of speaking up about that and doing something about it if you inside are thinking oh, i'm not a very good feminist can i really call myself a feminist you mm. are less likely to act when it matters mm. because you're carrying shame and guilt from things that just don't matter and if they do matter great put them on the table let's look at them let's talk about them let's exercise that muscle and get better at doing this stuff and get stronger and get more vocal because what i realized was uh was that I'm going to die imperfect. I'm going to die being not as good a feminist as I could be Mm. on literally my death day. Mm. I'm going to die with a full inbox, with unresponded (laughs) to emails. And somebody else is going to have to come along and go, uh, when someone says, oh, I'm just nudging on the email I sent last Wednesday, say, sorry, Deborah's dead and will never respond to emails again. So me lying it's the away... ultimate out of office, though. <laughs> it really is. It's okay to celebrate being a guilty feminist mm. and be, create a playful space where we don't have to be perfect in order to be 
a force for meaningful change. And you, you make the argument that when you acknowledge those hypocrisies and that kind of conflicting ideology, how, you know, the rational brain often is at odds with the, the brain that's being conditioned by being sent messages from a very young age of what it is to be a kind of correct woman, about how acknowledging those dualities, we might be able to unpack all that guilt together. Yes, and and start to examine why we're constantly being made to feel guilty as women. I think the patriarchy loves us guilty. It stops us uh, living at full mast, well, as I say. Guilt stagnant, I think, as well. Mm. It, it stultifies you, so you're you're less able to make kind of active progression because it's it's sapping your confidence and it's sapping your kind of ability to just get on with things. Exactly, exactly. So the guilty feminist is sort of a celebration of. It's okay to be, you know, guilty in inverted commas, not really mm. guilty, but, you know, um, and and start to participate in the kind of feminism where we're not just looking at something and going, that's wrong, that's bad, that's not what, that's what we don't want, i.e. we hate the patriarchy. Um, but we're, we're now starting to bring bricks and say, let's build the world we do want to live in. Mm. And that's what I find so exciting about the Guilty Feminist podcast is... Fighting for change looks angrier than fighting for the status quo. So the suffragettes looked angrier than the men of the House of Commons. Mm. Civil rights activists in America looked angrier than the the white men in Washington, D.C. A fight for change always looks angrier. One of the devices that you use that is obviously a USP of the guilty feminist and I'm sure I speak for many people when I say it's their favourite bit, is when you and your guests start each episode with their guilty feminist admissions, which is obviously mm. the foundation on which the show is built. So you talked about the face creams one, which I mm-hmm. think is is one of your best. Uh, my other favourite is, I'm a feminist, but I recently left a party without speaking to a single person except for apologising to the man who stood on my foot. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is brilliant. Um, what are some of your other favourites that you always think of as very kind of core to what the guilty feminist is? Uh, I'm a feminist, but... I secretly love the problematic romantic comedy Pretty Woman (laughs) and in truth I'm open to the idea of Richard Gere paying to enter me on a grand piano. (laughs) What's your favourite Dolly? I like the one where your nephew asked you to wear a princess dress. Oh that's I'm a feminist but uh, when my nephew my four-year-old nephew insisted on on me putting on my wedding dress to watch Beauty and the Beast with him, I also put on my tiara, which he had not requested. <laughs> I also just love the idea that Deborah has tiaras lying about. I mean, it was a little bit of a, a tiara in the in the jewel box. We all have a tiara in the jewel box, don't we? I mean, a lot of us do anyway, certainly. I don't think we all do, but I'm looking at Dolly and Pandora and feeling that they do. Do you have a tiara? I don't have yes, a tiara, do. and I feel very, right. very sad about I am sending you both a tiara. <laughs> Thank you. Immediately. I need to know what your I'm a feminist butts are. Dolly, do you have an I'm a feminist butt for me? It's a bad one. Okay, hit me with it. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but sometimes I'm totally okay with being a sex object for an hour and a half, and maybe even 20 minutes with the right guy. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's just, I know what you mean though. It's just, mm. you don't want to be treated like that in your work life or in your daily no. life or in no. your domestic life. But sometimes... In a, in a consensual space. In a consensual, limited period of the offer. length of home and away. <laughs> just saying. 
it's it's not it's it, sometimes that's what we we want to feel completely yeah Marilyn Monroe for an hour totally I don't want to live like Marilyn Monroe that's an no, awful miserable no. life miserable but life. just to just to visit that place 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 roll, just roll skirt yeah. to fly out once yeah I'm glad the high priestess of guilty feminism has just ordained you ordained I mean, me don't <laughs> listen to me I'm a giant numpty what do I know <laughs> what do I know Pandora I'm a feminist but. When I recently went to a fairground, I entered the Hall of Mirrors and I might have loitered for, again, an unspecified amount of time in front of the mirror that made me long and thin, very long and very thin, and I might have taken a few selfies. (laughs) (laughs) And what we're not telling you, dear Hilo listeners, is that we attempted those and then Deborah rewrote them to make them sound slightly better. (laughs) So what you're hearing, what you're hearing has been... Deborah Francis Whited. It's supposed to be Witten. Deborah Francis Witten. They were both. They were both truthful. I'm feminist parts. I just digitally altered them. They just needed a bit of a gloss. (laughs) Digitally, it was some CGI. (laughs) You've had a fascinating upbringing, Deborah. You were adopted and raised um, as a Jehovah's Witness. You went door knocking with Peter Andre, and when you were in America, Michael Jackson. You left the faith in order to attend Oxford University. How did your upbringing and subsequently leaving that religion pave the way for your later work? Um, well, firstly, just to be clear, I didn't actually knock on doors with Peter Andre, although he was in a neighbouring congregation uh, in Peter. Australia. Brother Peter, yeah. Um, at a time when to Peter Andre, all girls were mysterious, I'll be honest. <laughs> I, I bumped into him um, in, a, uh, in a unisex loo uh, where he was shooting a music video and I was doing something or other. Why was he shooting a music video in a unisex loo? Oh, no, no, it was a studio. Oh. He was shooting something and I was doing something. I was like, God, space is really at a premium, isn't it, for pop stars? <laughs> no, no, no. We were both recording something in some kind of music studios. and Especially uh, not in the unisex loo. We, pop, we bumped into each other in the unisex loo. Um, and he, I said, oh, Peter, I don't know if you remember me, Deborah from, you know, back in the day. And he went, oh, Deb, yeah, you're not a Jehovah's Witness anymore either. And I was like, no, ultimately... Uh, I couldn't reconcile my feminism with such a patriarchal organisation and it became very difficult. And uh, in, in many ways, the intellectual constraints were much worse uh, than the than the physical ones. And it was became untenable for me to continue my uh, connection with the Watchtower Society. And he went, yeah, I just really needed to have sex. <laughs> <laughs> and I and think he did his... go on to do that. So well done, Peter Andre. Good on you, I think Peter he, Yeah, Andre. I believe he has a text. <laughs> I, I, I also was quite keen on having sex, uh, but that wasn't that was my first conversational gambit. Um, he, he, he did say it a few times. I just really needed to have sex anyway. Um, and Michael Jackson once visited my congregation in London. I did not go door knocking with him, but there is a funny story that uh, after the meeting he decided to go to the doors. I mean, of course, everyone was just obsessed with the fact Michael Jackson was in the Kingdom Hall. No one was thinking about anything else. Um, but afterwards, he asked to go to the doors. And you have to be given territory. You don't just... I mean, you won't know this if you're not a Jehovah's Witness, but you can't randomly knock on any door. You're Um, given a patch. You're given a patch, that's right. right. Like the mafia. Yeah. Um, So today's territory is, you know, this street and around the corner, around the block, and you're you're shown what those are. They're probably on apps now, but in my day, it was a little... (laughs) they're on an app? Yeah. I reckon (laughs) they've got some kind of electronic thing. They must do a Google map, you know, something. They must do something with Google Maps, but it used to just be um, a map on a card um and so they gave him some territory and this is true he got in a limo with his guards his bodyguards and they drove off at the first house got out of the limo michael jackson and the bodyguards got up to the door 
bodyguards who are not Jehovah's Witnesses. Can you imagine opening the door and finding Michael Jackson with a watchtower and two big men behind him? God knows what the what the what the person in the house thought. Got back into the limo, went back down the garden path, got back in the limo, drove to the next house. Oh my god. Got back out, did the same thing, got back in the limo and drove away. We called him Two Doors Jackson. <laughs> Because nobody would do that. I've literally never heard of anybody going to two doors and living. No, I mean, that's you half-assed. You, an hour is seen as slack. It's right. a slacker. It sounds like perhaps he wasn't totally invested in his faith at that time. There, were, very, there were maybe inner contradictions raising their head there. In a very real way, I think we can be sure that that is the case. <laughs> um, but Prince was. Prince, Prince was really into it. And, uh, and before he died, when, after he died, they went to his congregation. They were like, oh, yeah, brother... Brother Prince, I guess. How I don't know. What, did Prince have another name? Well, the art, brother, the artist formerly known as Prince. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, he was. He joined up of his own accord and then stopped singing most of his best music, though, because a lot of it had content that would not be yes. approved by the Watchtower Society. But it was interesting when I was reading about, obviously, having seen lots of your brilliant comedy and having known that that was your upbringing. As I was reading the book, it was like I was joining the dots together for the first time. And I was like, of course, this has ended up being Deborah's mission because you managed to decult yourself, deprogram yourself mm. from, a, from a cult. And kind of that's, that's what you're doing with, with patriarchal conditioning now. It's all about, and that's what unpacking the guilt is as well. It's about deprogramming yourself from, the, from a cult, basically. Mm. That's true. Uh, the, in the second chapter of the book... Um, I talk about uh, the the cult of the body, um, and you know, don't drink the Kool Aid, only one calorie. You know, it's it's we are all in a cult of a body. When I left the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, the way that it wore off the fastest, if you're talking to people who are like wouldn't have any of those values in common, wouldn't have any of those ideas in common, and if you talked to them about it and told them what you used to believe, they would go, well, that's bizarre yeah that's wild like so so that's how it wears off is you mix with other people but who can you mix with in the west mm. in terms of other women who do not have ideas about so their body yeah. so i found when i was meeting women for lunch or coffee or even a business meeting that the conversation for the first 20 minutes would almost always be what are you not eating oh well i'm not eating carbs at the moment oh well i'm not eating sugar oh well i'm not eating mondays and wednesdays yes that bit made me laugh a lot that kind of parodic yeah parodic 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 um conversation because obviously it is a parody The you know i'm not eating on mondays and wednesdays but it's it's kind of the five two it's not a million oh yeah that's where i got it from Yeah. yeah absolutely so many women were saying to me i'm not eating mondays and wednesdays and that was their you know, it, the 5-2 diet it was a whole period. And, and that seems to warn off people aren't seem to be doing the 5-2 at the moment. But they would swear to me that although they were just having basically miso soup and they were like, no, it's really good and it makes me feel really energised. I'm like, well, it doesn't, does it? Because you are starving yourself. Mm, mm. But there was a sort of narrative around, no, 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 it's really good for, your, for you to sort of fast. And I, I was like... You're not doing it because it makes you feel better. You're doing it because you, you're trying to look more like somebody on a bus stop that has been digitally enhanced. And I, I had a real moment of... I had this amazing photo shoot done, in fact, uh, by Linda Cooper, who did the, um, the photo shoot for my book cover. She's brilliant. It's a fab picture. And I, I really... Yeah, she's absolutely brilliant. And, uh, and I had this really amazing photo shoot done. And unbeknownst to me, King's Place, where... I, we do a lot of our Guilty Feminist shows. Um, they put up these uh, billboards, basically, 
um, and one day they'd made one of me, unbeknownst to me, um, of one of these pictures from a photo shoot that was absolutely gorgeous photo. It was lighting, it was makeup, it was beautiful photography. And I walked underneath it and I remember scurrying underneath it because I thought, I cannot live up to my own billboard. Mm. And I went, well, look, if you cannot live up to your own billboard, then what are you doing trying to live up to Jennifer Aniston's L'Oreal billboard? Because that is what you're trying to do. And the reality is that's when you realise Jennifer Aniston can't live up to her own billboard. This is a lie. This is made up stuff. And it it is to get us to buy stuff. It is to distract us. It is to make us feel less than. And the problem with it for feminism is, if it was just like, oh, I hate my thoughts. Who cares? Who cares for feminism? But it isn't. Because if you're going in to apply for funding for your research project, for your PhD or for your charity or your, you know, whatever it is, and you are an enemy of your own body, if you've looked in the mirror that morning and looked at all of the ways in which it doesn't match up to the bodies of, you know, the season five Friends women, Mm. um, the cast of a network television sitcom, um, and you are secretly hating parts of your body or punishing yourself, when you walk into that funding meeting, you are walking in there as an enemy of your own self. And it's, listen, it's not that men don't have hang-ups. Of course, if a man's going on a date, I'm probably he's probably going, oh, I'm balding a bit, oh, look at my tummy or whatever. But if he's going into a funding meeting, there's nothing in the world signalling to him that his body is relevant. That's out of the room. Yeah. It's yeah. just it's He just looks down and thinks, well, this is obviously, this body is a perfectly good example of the genre. Yes, yes. Or it's irrelevant. It's absolutely irrelevant. It's not... It, and I'm not saying that's true for all men ever, but as a trend, mm. th- that certainly is true that men are not signals that how they look is the most important thing about them. Well, something that one of the chapters I found most powerful and most upsetting is the chapter that you just mentioned, drink, just drink the Kool-Aid, only one calorie, um, which begins with the statistic that 97% of women have negative thoughts about their bodies every day. You then go on to talk about your own struggles with body image and how it's a very long journey as you touched on mm. to sort of deprogram yourself from self-loathing and you, you mentioned it with the billboard but I'm just interested you're someone now who is very in the public eye your face is very recognizable you're photographed all the time you're on stage in front of huge audiences and I was wondering if you feel a pressure to have totally shaken off all those insecurities um yes I do and I also don't I don't uh and I also haven't shaken off all those insecurities. But I feel like part of the thing about the guilty feminist is we are all works in progress. Mm. So I think if I was somebody who was completely shame free, in a way, then you're an unattainable goal. Like, it, I, I think the fact that I have got some hang ups and I still do my amateur feminist parts and I still do feel those things. Um, it's an important part of your of your show of your of all of your work really, yeah is that you're all on a journey together yeah and and I think it's I think you know that's in the book where I say how we feel about our bodies is relevant to feminism because it puts us at a, it's at a disadvantage if we literally hate the furniture of what we're made of and I think we're really good at othering our bodies and going yeah I'm great but my thighs are awful no your thighs are you yeah and that's really the place that I've come to is I feel personally for myself I cannot be emotionally happy 
unless I am nurturing and nourishing the furniture. It's interesting what you say about um, your thighs kind of, it's like depersonalizing parts of your body. Because mm-hmm. I just wrote a um, piece about my boobs and I said I kind of knew that um, I'd always had like a really complicated relationship with my boobs and I knew that I was finding peace with them when I stopped kind of ghosting them, when I stopped thinking about them as like mm. a separate part of my body, like not me. Mm. Whereas obviously, this sounds like a really obvious thing to say, like your body is you, mm. your body cannot not be you mm. but by kind of alienating yourself from parts of it you by deconstructing it you're sort of yeah you're putting yourself at a real disadvantage aren't you because you need to you need to own yourself fully inhabit. and wholly yeah. yeah inhabit yourself yeah. fully and i know i was in a bad place with my body if i start avoiding myself in mirrors because mm. i just think because oh, it's a sign of kind of further you know yeah i don't like it I'm, and i i talk about that in the book that i i was literally mm. ghosting my body and just ignoring that it wanted to move, ignoring its signals for when and how it wanted to eat nourishing food and just sort of shoving chocolate in. Yeah, ghosting really is the word. Yeah. It's total I, disrespect. In my head, I wanted chocolate all the time. It's not what my body wanted. My body did not want that. Mm. My body, When you mm-hmm. really, really listen to your body, sometimes it does want chocolate, but most of the time it wants nourishing, lovely portions of... Uh, of food that is very nutritious. That's what it wants most of the time. And it doesn't want four baguettes. It doesn't. It's, it's, it's crying out when you do that to it. But also it doesn't want to be screaming hungry. And that's the other thing we do to it. And we need to, we all need to get mindful about our eating. We mm. need to really listen and get in touch. And the thing is, when you first listen to your body, people say, oh, well, I would want cake all the time. No, it's what your brain your brain brain explains to your body what it wants because you have denied your brain your mm, body cake exactly for extended periods or you think cake is wrong somehow or naughty yeah you tr- truly do believe that that's what your body's asking for and it isn't just to throw a curveball i've never denied myself cake and i still want to eat it most days <laughs> but i do i do acknowledge that yeah, but, then, but then maybe you're maybe you're mindfully eating cake like there's nothing I do enjoy it I think it's quite a mindful process yeah if you are mindfully eating it the problem I think is when you're just sort of no, I, 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 and eat, I know exactly what you're, you're eating when you're miserable you're going yeah. I don't want to be eating this but I'm going to shove another yeah. piece of cake yeah. in Short to punish myself feels, yeah. and you're going yeah but I love the taste of it but also yeah. kind of it's, it's a hateful it's a hateful act it's like treating yeah. your body like a rubbish bin or something like yeah, that totally. and you don't want to be doing it if you're happy eating cake and I really do mean this if you're happy eating cake and that's what your body is asking for I really really don't think it mm. matters uh if you're fat i don't think fats are, are bad no, no but also body it's sort of nothing to do with your size what you're talking about because you no. can mindfully eat at size six and you can mindfully eat at size 20 to use the mm. the constraints of modern sizing it's it's really nothing to do with with you know clothing sizes no. what you're saying intersectionality features heavily in the book you talk about its urgency and how the right side of history is calling us in can you break down what it means for anyone listening who is unsure of what intersectionality is and why it's so important in modern feminism so intersectionality is a term coined by uh, an african-american activist called kimberly crenshaw and it's about where gender intersects with uh, race Uh, disability, sexual orientation, gender expression and gender identity and how those things further marginalise, criminalise and demoralise people or further privilege them. So my experience as 
uh, a white, effectively straight, non-disabled woman uh, who with fairly femme gender expression turning up to an event um, means the power structures uh, and the expectations of society will uh, be more easily met by things out of my control that I was just privileged to be born with mm. than they will uh, by people who uh, ha- whose gender intersects with other identities. It's because the power structures were created by um, straight white posh men, and that is kind of global because of colonisation. So if you are also white in the Venn diagram of life, uh, you have won the lottery because they made life better for white people. You've won the lottery if you cross over with any of their identities um, and therefore you you have a privilege. And it is important to acknowledge that people uh, who do not have those privileges uh, often have a tougher time of it Mm. in day-to-day life. Mm. I always remember when I interviewed you 18 months ago, Folk Australia, something you said to me about what it is to be an intersectional feminist. I said to you, as a straight white woman, sometimes I wonder if anyone really needs my opinions. Aren't there enough people like me sharing their thoughts? And you said you should share them because you're still a woman and we don't have enough women in public spaces yet. And what you should do is you should get up on that platform that is easily accessible for you. I'm paraphrasing here. Mm. And you should lend your platform and invite onto your platform all those people who aren't offered a space there, who aren't white and straight. Invite all the people to the party who wouldn't otherwise be there. And that was a really important conversation for me to understand inclusivity and the idea of amplifying others, which is something you refer to as the shine theory, which is basically reinforcing the ideas of other women, you know, holding each other up so they're not, the ideas are not co-opted by men. And it's something I hold really dear to me as a journalist. And when you explained to me, I couldn't believe that I'd got to, I can't remember how old I was, almost the age of 30. And it had never, it had never been so clearly spelled. Well, I think it's privilege now is something that it's really, again, easy to feel ashamed of or guilty about. Um, but privilege is a wonderful thing to move mountains with. When you realise you have privilege, at first you go, oh, I think I started the guilty feminist to wallow in my own oppression. And I learned more about my own privilege than anything. And that's I went, so interesting. Yeah. I went, oh, shit, no, what I'm you privileged. Can do with it. Yeah. And then I went, oh, OK, all right. So I had a while of feeling guilty and going, oh, should I even be in a space? And then I went, no, because if, if you've got privilege, privilege will open doors um, that are locked to other people. Yeah. So you open the door and then hold the door open mm. and shine a light. Um, if, you know, if you've got white privilege, that's a huge deal. Like you, there are all sorts of spaces you will get invited into um, because white people get into rooms that other people don't. Um, Male people get into rooms that other people don't. Uh, Straight people get into rooms that other people don't or have an easier time of just walking down the street and so i'm saying i'm arguing in the book that it's hard to get out of a boat of privilege yes and it's hard for men if there's 12 men on the board and 66 percent of the client base of this company is female they know they all know that one of them should get out of the boat or in fact five of them should get out of the boat but who's going to be the first or make the boat bigger put more people on the boat have a board of 20 but you need to have equal representation but who's going to be the one to get out of the boat of privilege it's hard but the th- yeah the thing that you doesn't said, mean it's not necessary but it's hard the thing that you said in one of the first episodes i ever tuned into of guilty feminist years ago which is it just 
it made so much sense the minute that you said it. It's you're like, I get it, guys. Power, money, privilege, these are really nice things. And once you've had them and you've been conditioned to believe that they are your birthright or you've earned them, I get it. You wouldn't want to give that away. Nope. That's a hard thing to part with. Entitlement is the residue of privilege. So we've all had hot and cold running water since birth. There is no hot and cold running water in nature. It is a privilege to which we have become entitled. And if there's one tap in your house that never works, it's just broken since you moved in, just doesn't work. You stop going to that tap. When you commit to being an intersectional feminist, there are uncomfortable conversations or things that you confront about your own privilege as a white feminist. In regards to intersectionality, I particularly liked when you wrote, the language can feel like a minefield and the culture can be pretty lively. So while it's good to take criticism on board, it's best not to take it too personally. And then a sort of academic footnote at the bottom of the page reads, I still take it personally sometimes, but I try to let it go within half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> How are you with that now? Is that still a I'll difficult be... thing sometimes? It, yeah, of course. But, it, but actually, I have to say, I've built the podcast on criticism. People wrote in at the beginning and said, you're not representing enough women of colour or the way that you are speaking about gender expression doesn't reflect how people with a different gender identity or gender expression from you want to be uh, want to be talked about. So, you know, you've got to you've got to up your game. And at first it was really easy to go, oh, God, well, the podcast is free. I mean, if you don't like it, make mm. your own. <laughs> it's just too easy to say that. Isn't but it? I, you know what? I really thought about it is, of course, you're defensive when you feel attacked. But I thought about it. And I thought, I don't like it when I try and tell men the experiences that I have in comedy, for example, that they don't share. And they deny it. They reject my life experience. They, they, they say that I'm imagining it or they somehow say that it is not important. Or not their problem. Not their problem yeah. and they dismiss it. Or, that, or it's not their problem to ally and speak up when they're on all male bills and say, you know, there's lots of really great female comedians. Perhaps I could, you know, introduce you to some women who are comedians or recommend, or if they're creating a space to co-create that space in a way that it's it's welcoming to women and it's a place where women can do well and they're invited in in the first place. I don't like it when men won't hear my experience. And that's how I started to think about it, was that when people are writing in, what they're saying is, I really like your space and I feel... It's a home for me. It's a compliment when people really write in because they're going, they're going, I thought this was my shared space. And then last week you said this and it made me feel excluded in a place that I was starting to feel really included. So I really don't want people to feel excluded. So I'm very, I really do respond to criticism. And for example, uh, Rubes Walsh, who comes on the show sometimes and is interviewed in the book, asked us to stop saying ladies and gentlemen because she's non-binary. And she said, every time I hear that, I go, ladies and gentlemen, not people like you. Mm. And it doesn't cost me. Now, some people will roll their eyes at that and go, oh, why can't we say ladies and gentlemen? And I'm like, you can. You just have to know that there are some people in your audience who will feel excluded. And it doesn't cost me anything to, to cut that out and say, please welcome to the stage. The audience know who you're addressing. You don't need to say it. It's, it's excess words that mean it's just... People don't really hear them unless they feel excluded by them. So I'm like, I have a policy. And if anyone on the show says, ladies and gentlemen, I just go, oh, can we quickly stop? Can we do it again? And can we just say, please welcome to the stage? Because then the audience learns with me. As we know, comedy is a very effective medium for relaying weighty, problematic things, and it's something you deploy very effectively to do so. A parody I thought was brilliant was your letter from the gentleman 
in Hollywood. To end the episode, could you read that out for us? Oh, sure. This is an open letter from the gentleman of Hollywood, in inverted commas. Dear women everywhere, this is an open letter to reassure you that we, the men of Hollywood, vigorously reject Harvey Weinstein and his reign of terror, and as a sign of our concern and respect, are proceeding to take his name out of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences official sorting hat. We are shocked, shocked, we tell you, to discover that men treat women the way we see them treat them every day. We are dismayed that women have been exploited the way they've been openly and consistently exploited since Hollywood was founded. We are outraged that eight seasons of Entourage and a full-length motion picture of the same name accurately reflected the world we live in every single day and wasn't a complete fantasy in the manner of the Lord of the Rings, as we assumed. We and the young women we are currently trying to coerce into a sexual relationship in exchange for the auditions they so desperately need to buy food to eat are equally horrified by the abuses inherent in the system. The women we are right this minute Skyping for a little sugar in exchange for a good word to the right agent, despite their protestations that they do not want us to do this, are as surprised as we are that we are doing this. They didn't think it would be like this when they moved from Missouri to follow the love of their craft, and neither did we. We just can't understand how it continues to happen, while every day we do nothing to change it. An influential group of us were only saying at a strip club last night, as we deliberately conspired to block a hard-working, talented woman from directing a feature film she's been developing for five years to give it to her less experienced male colleague, that it was appalling that Harvey Weinstein has been allowed to operate this completely out-of-character operation of power abuse within the context of an incredibly egalitarian culture that tells women that they can be whoever they want to be as long as they are under 26 or look as if they are, and are happy to work in an environment devoid of women and throbbing with men. Harvey Weinstein is certainly not invited to our next official Hollywood orgy for men over 55 and women under 22 and will not be receiving an invitation to our next pin-the-tail-on-the-ingenue and jacuzzi-themed barbecue. We are now fathers of daughters, and so care about women, where once we just saw them as tits who could remember lines and hit marks. You may say this is no argument, as Harvey Weinstein himself has four daughters. To that we say, yes, well. Can we ask for your help by encouraging you to join Donna Karen? in considering what you wear when you meet with us professionally and socially. Look in your wardrobe and ask yourself what blouse and skirt combination says make me watch you jerk off into a pot plant and don't wear that. Throw out your ask me to watch you shower jumpsuit because we think that would be a big help. (laughs) We also wish to say, while we have your attention, that we mourn the loss of our dear friend and colleague Hugh Hefner and his memorial misogyny drinks and plaque unveiling will be held at Oppression, which is the nightclub on the corner of Hollywood and Patriarchy at midnight. Ladies welcome, miniskirts get in free. With all our love, the horrified men of Holly, wouldn't you like to stay and have a drink? Thank you so much, Deborah, for joining the Hilo today. The Guilty Feminist is out now, and you can download the much-loved and brilliant podcast weekly. Thank you so much to everyone who listened to the Hilo. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com, or tweet us at the Hilo Show. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.